0: One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek.
1: All right, you guys. Well, good morning. I'm going to, we had a little mic issue here, so I'm just going to put my coat on so I don't rip the cord off of my back and pull the whole thing off and blow up the church. So give me a second here <laughs> I'll put the coat on. It'll be easier. Thank you. Well, it is good to be here. i I'm, um, I'm. known Rod for uh, about five years now, or about four years. My wife, my family's here, my wife has known Rod since uh, what year? 1988, so um, check this out, small world, so my wife was uh, in Rod's youth group when Rod was a youth pastor in Buffalo, New York, can you believe that, did you guys even know that Rod was a youth pastor back in Buffalo, so he's moved on to the promised land of the Bay Area, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, for a long time, he was, he was back there, and that's where my wife got to know him, and so when, when we figured out one Sunday, uh, he met my wife, and he went, are you a severance? And it was like this amazing moment of, well, no way, we've known each other for a couple of decades almost, and so uh, praise the Lord for how the Lord continues to grow us and strengthen us in Christ, and I've, uh, I've been looking forward to being here for a while. I'm so thankful that Rod's having us partner together as churches. I uh, can't believe that we're able to do that, and we really do consider you a gospel partner uh, as a church at North Creek and here at Gateway, and uh, that Rod and um, our senior pastor, John McNeff, are... Uh, had became fast friends and, and good friends in the gospel, and we're grateful for that. And I just am one of the guys on staff of the church uh, who helps out with ministry in a variety of different forms, and got to know several of uh, of uh, the people here just through yeah working at the Master's College where Ariel was at for a while, and I was uh, one of the teachers, one of the teachers who never turned in any grading, but one of the teachers there, and. Uh, and so grateful to get to know so many different uh, folks here at Gateway. So we're going to open up the Word this morning. Rod said I have f- five hours to preach, and so uh, we'll finish up by, certainly by dusk. Um, listen, we're going to be all over the place this morning in the Word, so I hope that you're ready to, to turn around different places. Uh, we're going to be talking about what it means to be happy to be home. I, uh, you've heard the phrase before, the absence makes the heart grow fonder. And, uh, and that's not a biblical statement, but it's probably true. Uh, There's another statement that goes, uh, those who have been on a long pilgrimage increasingly desire to reach their destination. Those who have been on a long pilgrimage increasingly desire to reach their destination. And for those of us who know Christ this morning, you know that we're on a pilgrimage, right? It's one of the ways that Peter talks about who we are. We are sojourners and exiles in this place, uh, in this life. And some of us have been on that pilgrimage for a long time. Some of us maybe for not as long. But the reality is is that we ought increasingly to desire to reach our destination, which is what? Yeah, heaven. We should be increasingly desiring to reach our final destination. So this morning's sermon is what I would call textual doctrinal with one simple goal. And that's to increase your desire to be home. That's it. The, the, The goal this morning is just to increase... Your desire to be home. And that's what we're going to look at this morning in in a lot of different passages. So I thought it would be good for us to consider uh, the first question here, which is simply, what is it about your home that excites you? What is it about your home that excites you? A purposely ambiguous question because it should provoke two different responses. Well, which home? I would want you to think about whichever home you're thinking about right now. Uh, Because it's good to think about either one, both, or one or the other. Um, but specifically this morning, it's good for us to think about uh, the fact that we should be thinking about, increasingly thinking about our heavenly home. And when you think about your heavenly home, what do you think of? When you think about heaven, what is it that most excites you? I was um, I was struck with the question when someone asked me one time, and then immediately didn't wait for me to answer, but supplied this answer: uh, the glory of heaven is God. Now I don't know what it is that excites you about heaven. But the reality is, is that the glory of heaven is God. And in fact, I want you to to see that in the scriptures, this has always been the case. So we'll start in our Bibles this morning by turning to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. You know that some people would call, and even Christ himself called, uh, present heaven, paradise. You remember that on the cross, don't you? When he said to the thief who turned to him uh, and said, remember me when you come into your kingdom? Uh, that Jesus turned to that thief and said, This day you will be with me in paradise. Well, in the first paradise, in the Garden of Eden, uh, it's true, and it's not an unfair statement to say, that uh, the glory of heaven back then, that paradise, was God himself. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. And they, that is Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, now just stop and think about that for a second. That would have been glorious. They had apparently a habit or a custom of walking with the Lord God in the cool of the day. Now I know the context is something different, isn't it? The context on that particular day was not one of comfort. It was one of what? Yeah, condemnation and conviction because they had sinned. Back up in verses 1 through 7. But just seeing what the custom was tells us that would have been a glorious Event A glorious time, it seems like, in the cool of every day. How many days? We aren't told. But this is the glory of past perfection. The glory of past perfection was not a perfect garden. It was a perfect God walking with his people in a perfect garden. That was the glory of paradise past. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed before, but the Lord God walking meant that there was a physical presence of God. It wasn't just this ether. Oh, here comes God. He's whistling around again. It wasn't some fog that blew across the garden. Oh, there's God. He's just a fog. No, no. Actually, R. Kent Hughes says that walking in the garden meant the footsteps of God were in the garden. You could hear him walking, which meant you could see him coming, which meant they were walking literally with a literally physically present God. That is glorious. And among all the other perfections of, of the past perfection of, of Eden, this would have been the most glorious, right? So the glory of paradise past was God's presence. The, the glory, by the way, skipping all, all the way ahead now to the end of redemptive history, in future perfection in the millennial kingdom is the same thing. Now turn to Ezekiel chapter 48. Ezekiel chapter 48. I told you we were going to be hustling all over the Bible this morning. So I want you to keep turning with me to these passages. Ezekiel 48. This is the end of the book of Ezekiel. And you're going, man, why are you in Ezekiel? I thought, I thought we were talking about heaven. Well, at the end of Ezekiel, you are talking about uh, the millennial reign of God. The millennial reign of God. This is the millennial temple that's being described at length. It's the end of redemptive history. Just before the dawning of the eternal state. So in past perfection in the garden, the glory of paradise past was God walking with his people. In the future, at the end of the age, at the end of redemptive history, just before eternity dawns, in the millennial kingdom, what is the glory of the millennium? Well, look at Ezekiel 48, verse 30. And this is riveting reading. You ready? Here we go. These shall be the exits of the city. On the north side, which is to be 4,500 cubits by measure, Three gates. The gates of Reuben, Judah, Levi, the gates of the city being named after the tribes of Israel. On the east side, which is to be 4,500 cubits, three gates. The gate of Joseph, Benjamin, and Dan. On the south side, which is, you guys, isn't this riveting? Which is 4,500 cubits by measure, three gates. The gate of Simeon, Issachar, and Zebulun. On the west side, which is to be 4,500 cubits, three gates. The gate of Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. Now look at verse 35, the last verse in the book. The circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits. And the name of the city from that time on shall be Yehoshimah. The Lord is there. Now don't mistake the fact that a city, the name of a city in 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 this time frame was meant to communicate the essence of what the city was known for. Which is to say the glory of the millennial city, the glory of the millennial temple... The glory of millennial worship, the glory of the the millennial kingdom in general is Yehoshimah. Everything else is subordinate to this glory. And this will be pretty glorious. But the best thing about future paradise, millennial paradise is, that God's going to be there with his people. And friends, this starts to sound very similar to the first paradise in the garden. When God walked with his people in Genesis 3, he seems very intent at the beginning of the the age to tell you that the same thing is going to happen at the end of the age, which is that God is going to be with his people again physically. The glory of future perfection is that God will be there. By the way, in case you're wondering about the glory of eternal perfection, we've looked at... Past perfection, Genesis 3 verse 8. We'll look at, we've looked at future perfection in the millennium in, in Ezekiel 48. But what about into eternity? Well, for that we turn to Revelation chapter 21. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. We're looking at the beginning of our Bible, the middle of our Bible in Ezekiel, and then the end of our Bible. We're swinging all the way through the Bible in the first point about what is it about your home that most excites you? What most excited Adam and Eve Was God walking with them? What seems like will be the the glory of our future perfection in the millennium is that the Lord will be there. What will definitely be the glory of eternal perfection in the new heavens and new earth is, here again, same thing. Revelation chapter 21, look at verses 22 and 23. Familiar verses. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the what? The Lord God, the Almighty, and whom? And the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Why? For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The lamp of the glory of God is the Lamb. In other words, God and the Lamb are the glory of heaven. And there's no need for a sun, there's no need for a moon, there's no need for light bulbs, there's no need for electricity. We've got all of the power we need, all the glory we need, just by simply beholding our God and beholding the Lamb. That's the glory of the eternal state. That's the glory of the millennial kingdom. That's the glory of the first paradise. What makes heaven glorious to you? I mean, isn't this what you want more than anything? You're a pilgrim living this whole life to be somewhere else, but what is it that you long to see when you go there? C.S. Lewis wrote this, and you are probably aware of this, when he said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And that's exactly what you were made for. You were not made for for finding the sum total of your satisfaction in this life. In fact, any kind of satisfaction you you find in this life is just a dim reflection of the greater satisfaction, the infinitely greater satisfaction you'll find in Christ in the next life. All these things that you are finding satisfaction in are only dim reflections of, of the satisfaction you're supposed to find in him. Starting in this life and increasing ever more in the next life. That's the explanation for why you experience any kind of satisfaction or joy in this life. It's just a, a thread that's going to increase forever into Christ in heaven. So is that what thrills you about going home? Because um, the glory of, of heaven is God, and friend, you need to realize the gravy of heaven is everything else. You know what gravy is, don't you? Gravy is, listen, not the main course. Now, I'm going to take a picture of this. I already took a picture of this barbecue sauce because I thought, this is perfect. The Lord totally cued this one up on Father's Day. You guys know if I just start chugging on this, although you said you were going to start drinking it, Steve, so feel free. But, but if, you, if I was to tell you, hey, we're going to have a sweet barbecue, everything is going to be set, and the main dish is barbecue sauce. You'd be like, hey, something's wrong with that. (laughs) If we were to sit down at a Thanksgiving dinner and and, and the whole spread's put out and I was to tell you, hey, just put a little bit of turkey on the main course, which is gravy, he'd be like, man, you got that thing backwards. You've got that backwards. Gravy's never the main dish. It's never the main course. It just augments and makes sweeter the, the main thing, which for men is meat. The gravy of heaven is everything else. Can I just encourage you to to really wrestle with this because this is um, something that I think we need to resolve to affirm now. If I can be frank, you guys, the glory of heaven is not seeing loved ones. And I, I, I have talked to some people who have told me on the tail end of a memorial service or a funeral or a graveside that they cannot wait now to go to heaven. Why? I mean, you'll hear things like this, because now I have more reason to be there than I ever have in my life. I heard one guy tell me that. I'm sorry, more reason to be there than ever in your life? You just just let that sink in for a second, because that should affect you as a, a loved one going on before you to heaven is significant and it's real and it runs deep. I get that, but listen, that is gravy. It's gravy. You have to affirm that that's true. And I I I know that that probably was like, wait a minute, but you can't you cannot just say that. And I know that if I've said this to someone who is just lost, lost a loved one, then it is particularly hard. I would understand that. I, I am assuming this morning that I'm speaking to people who have not recently lost a loved one, but someday will. And so the time to build the resolve that you will rejoice in the God of heaven over everything else that comprises it is a good resolve for you this morning. Seeing heroes of the faith is gravy. Luther. Spurgeon. Spurgeon. Augustine, Calvin, name your hero. Gravy. They're just men. They're just women. They're not the main event. Seeing the pearly gates, seeing golden streets, seeing every kind of unimaginably beautiful, splendid, extravagant display of richness and wealth. all the saving events and all the saving blessings of the gospel are means of getting obstacles out of the way so that we might know and enjoy God most fully. Piper continues, propitiation, redemption, forgiveness, imputation, sanctification, liberation, healing, and heaven. None of these is good news except for one reason. They bring us to God for our everlasting enjoyment of him. If we believe that all these things have happened to us, but do not embrace them for the sake of getting to God, then they have not happened to us. Christ did not die to forgive sinners who make heaven about family members or heroes of the faith. He, he, doesn't, he didn't die for your sin to secure heaven for you so that you rejoice more greatly in Luther than in Christ. Christ. More in your mother-in-law who went on to glory than in him. The question that must be asked is this. Could you be happy going home to heaven if Christ wasn't there? It's a good question, isn't it? What's your answer? People who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. It's just that simple. People who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to the God of heaven. And these are all not turns of phrase that make you go, oh, that's nice. No, this is gospel truth, and, and a lot depends on it. It's a way, the, the gospel is a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. That's why Christ died. That's why there is a gospel. First Peter chapter 3 says this, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us home to heaven. Is that what it says? No, that he might bring us to God. That's why Jesus came. That's why he died, to reconcile men to God. 2 like Corinthians chapter 5 verses 17 and following. That's why we're new creatures in Christ so that we might be ministers of reconciliation encouraging people to be reconciled not to heaven, to God who reigns from heaven. This is a most important question for you this morning up on the screen. What is it that excites you about going home? If you can say that anything else about heaven is more glorious to you than seeing Christ, then friend, um, I would just encourage you to rethink why you're so excited to go. And for those of us who are thinking, well, maybe I I get that, I already affirmed that, so mission accomplished, sermon over, I'm done. Um, Be aware that this first question is really just a question for your mind. This question is just a question for you to affirm the next question is a question about your hands. What difference does this make anyways? What difference does our home make anyways? Because, you know, you hear people say, well, he's a, <laughs> he's, a, he's so heavenly minded that he's of no what? Earthly good. Um, so you hear people say that sometimes. Okay, first of all, I just need to say to you, I've never seen anybody too heavenly minded. Have you? A. B, I, I'm not even sure if that's true. <laughs> that if you got to be more heavenly-minded, you would be of less earthly good. I'm, I'm waiting to see if that axiom is actually true. I'm not convinced it is. Because the reality is, is that your home makes a ton of difference today. Your home makes a ton of difference today. In a lot of different ways, the Bible would say to you, man, listen, heaven makes a difference in life today. The, the God of heaven makes a huge difference in life today in a lot of ways. Let me just look at them uh, with you from the scripture uh, together. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. The first thing that heaven does, everybody, is it increases our hope in Christ. Turn to 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. This is uh, I think a no-brainer. You can see this as plainly from the passage, but look at 1 John 1 or 3 verses 1 through 3. Uh, it says there, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Now that's a that's a past tense love. You want to know why we know that? Because God's love, the Father's love, began when in your life? If you're a believer this morning, when did the Father's love begin to be extended to you? Yeah, before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 tells us that. In love, God, the Father, predestined us for adoption as sons, right? Remember that? In Ephesians 1, 3, 4, and 5. And so when John picks up on that same theme and says, see what kind of love the Father has given unto us, you should be thinking, oh, that's love that started... In forever past. Or in other words, God's always loved you. He's always loved you. It is a remarkable thought to think about, isn't it? uh, We're an adoptive family. We've had two children that are biologically um, given to us and three children that have been given to us via adoption. And I can relate to what it means to have to set your love on a child that you don't know. I get, this, I get what it means to go and get your child and, and bring them back home. Uh, these pictures are not lost on uh, people who have maybe walked through that. And those who have watched others walk through it, they get what it means for God to have a heart to love his children so much that he would go and get them and pay any price to secure them as members of his family. This is what thrilled John. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. It's, adopt, it's adoption language. Only Jesus is, is, is the only begotten. Everybody else is adopted. We're all adopted in Christ, aren't we? And that is a glorious truth to John. But look at the difference that it makes in life today. Th- so that we should be called children of God, and that's what we are. So our position is that we're children together. I love that Ed calls me brother, because that's what we are, right? We're, if, we're, if we're all children of God, then we're all brothers and sisters together in Christ, a sweet relationship we enjoy as family, isn't it? And that's ba- based on what God has done. The reason why the world doesn't know God is it, it doesn't know us is because it doesn't know him. Verse two, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be, here goes now from the present that we're God's children into the future in verse two, and what it will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will sh- see him just as he is. So our future hope of heaven is based on our present relationship as children built on the back of God's eternal love for us in the past. Do you see what John's doing? Past, present, and into the future. Now, what difference does all of that make? Well, that's in verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in God or Christ does what in the present? Does what in the present? Purifies himself as he is pure. Do you see what the hope of heaven does for you in the present tense? In other words, what difference does heaven make today? It makes a ton of difference today. Reflection on your future and seeing Christ makes a ton of difference and that it purifies you today. So for those of us who think, oh, heaven, that's just a a thought to have in your mind. That doesn't really make any difference in your life. John would strongly contend with you on that. It does make a difference in life. It increases our hope in Christ. Here's what else it does. It inflames our love and faith for Christ. Turn back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. You see, we in the first point, we moved forward through the Bible. Now you can see that we're moving backwards through the Bible, right? So here's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. It says there, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter is saying, um, by God's grace, when you love the one that you've never seen, uh, it is a remarkable thing. That's faith, right? And in fact, actually, you believe by faith in someone that you've never seen, and you rejoice, verse 8, with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. Now listen, the argument is one from lesser to greater. If you have never seen Jesus one time, I don't know how many of you would. I'm a little afraid to ask for a raise of hands because if anybody raises their hand, we'll talk to you afterwards. But, but my point is, is that you, none of us have seen Jesus. And we love him, and we're filled with joy inexpressible. Okay, now listen. So what's it going to be like? What kind of crazy joy are you going to experience? How much is your love going to be inflamed when you move from this life to the next life, and you open your eyes in the next life, and there he is? You want to talk about inflamed joy and and love beyond inexpressible because you see inexpressible joys in this life. So what kind of crazy joys are going to be in the next life when we finally see them? It, It will be an infinitely increasing joy. Hey, let that future glimpse of Christ inflame your love and joy in Christ today. That to me sounds super practical now. Doesn't it? What other difference does it make? We got to move now. You remember Paul back in in Philippians chapter 1. I won't take any time even to read it. For to me to live is Christ, to die is what? Gain. It's verse 21, verses 22 through 25 says, Man, I'm hard pressed between the two options of whether I should depart and be with the Lord or whether I should stay here. But I'm convinced I'm going to remain on for your sake for the sake of the increase of your joy and progress in the faith, Paul says in Philippians 1, 22 through 25. And so Paul's desire to depart is singular. I'm only desiring to depart so that I can go and go to heaven. Is that what he says? No. He, he doesn't even talk about the language of heaven. He just says, for me to depart is to go to Christ. And so that's how he speaks about it. And heaven, he says, is what excites his desire for Christ. In fact, he says it's far better to depart. You know what that word means, depart, in Philippians 1. It's the idea that a ship is at dock, and and the the ship is just docked, 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 docked in life, in this life. And then at death, the anchor is pulled, the ropes are untied, and you sail off to your your destination for which you were created to, to fulfill. Did you know, friends, that that's how Paul thinks about the next life? This life is not really anything more than you just sitting at the dock. When you die, you set sail for the destination for which you were created. That's the language of, I desire to depart because it's far better. Do you see that there in Philippians 1? Which is to say, heaven's where you're really supposed to be. Let your future destination inform what you do at dock now. It excites your desire for Christ. It inflames your love for Christ. It, it invigorates your growth in Christ. It invigorates your growth in Christ. We don't have time to look at this passage either because we've got to keep scooting. But you, in Colossians chapter 3, remember that Paul says to set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Remember that? So you're supposed to set your mind on things above, step one. Step two is then you can put off all the deeds of the flesh. That's step two. And then you can put on uh, the deeds of Christ. That's step three. But you can't just obey Christ, step three, without step one, which is setting your mind on things above. In fact, Paul would even say that you can't put off and put on, which are classic, this classic language for obedience in Christ. You can't even begin to obey unless you set your eyes on Christ who is seated in the heavenly places. And this is a good reminder for us because we're so prone to just say, hey, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. I'm a good American. That's what I do. Everything's based on performance in America. So I'll perform, just tell me how to do it. Right? That's who we are as Americans. But Paul said that's totally wrong-headed. You start by looking to the one who is your strength, and he'll give you the power to obey him. Set your mind on things above. If you want to invigorate your growth in Christ, you look to him first, and he'll give you the power to put off the deeds of the flesh, verses 5 through 11, and to put on... The deeds of the Spirit and the work of Christ, verses 12 through 17. So uh, all those different reasons that you can see up there are differences that your home makes in your life today. Does that make sense, everybody? There's a lot more than that, but there's these four simple ones. That's just a, a question aimed at your hands, because some of you are asking like, okay, I'm a practical guy. I like to keep it simple, and you're talking about heaven, which isn't even now, it's totally next world stuff. who cares? What difference does it make? It makes this kind of difference. That's a huge difference in your life today. That's a question for your hands. The question for your head is, what is it about having the most excites you? Here's a question for your heart. It's pretty simple. Uh, Do you long to go home? And notice the, the key word is long. Do you long to go home? If indeed the greatness and glory of going home is God himself, if God himself is the glory of heaven, then do you long to be where he is? Seeing God has always been the great longing of great men. Did you know that? Seeing God has always been the great longing of great men in the Bible. Even though God said, no one can see me and live, did you know that people still have this desire to see him? It's an amazing thing to think about. Walking back through the Bible now, just in summary form, I want you to think about this. Uh, Turn to the book of Job, the book of Job, and I know that Job's in the middle of your Bible, but he actually was the first writer in the Bible, so this is the oldest reference in the Bible to men who want to see God. Do you long to be home? To see God. You should. That's been the great desire of great people in the Bible throughout the ages. Job 19, verse 23 through 27, Job yearned to see God. He said this in verse 23, oh, that my words were written, oh, that they were inscribed in a book, oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. What he's trying to say, everybody, is, man, I'm serious about this. I'm serious about what I'm about to say. Verse 25, for I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last... He will stand upon the earth. Or the word could be translated, he will take his stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh. you see what Job's great hope is? I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold and not another. Oh, how my heart yearns within me. Job yearned to see God. It was his singular ambition in the midst of terrible suffering. He wanted to see God. Is that your longing? Moses, in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, in Exodus chapter 34, verses 4 and 5, you remember, he said, oh God, in the midst of a crisis, show me your what? Glory. It was the longing of Moses' heart in the midst of crisis to see God's glory. And God was very gracious to him and said, you can't see my glory. You can't see the sum total of all of who I am. If you saw my wrath, if you saw my justice, you'd be consumed. I'm going to make all of my, remember what he said? Goodness pass before you. (laughs) You're going to see me, but you're just going to see my grace. Because that's all you can handle. Friends, that's all you need. Do, do, do you long to see the God of grace like Moses pled to see the goodness of God? David, continuing marching through the Old Testament in Psalm 27, the passage we already read, verses 3 and 4, and then verse 8, if you just turn from Job 20 over to Psalm 27. David was a man who was one of the most successful men in his generation. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're one of the most successful men in your generation. I don't know where you're at. Successful women in your generation. You know, Job was the richest man in his generation. Moses was the most powerful man in his generation. But they met with suffering and crisis. David's writing Psalm 27 in none of those. He's writing in the midst of great, uh, as far as we can tell, great... Joy and great also a blessing, but some crisis as well. In Psalm 27, which we had read already, he says in verse seven, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. And my heart says back to you, your face, Lord, is what I want. To see a person's face was to see who they really were. What's David asking for? He wants to see God. He sought to gaze upon God's beauty, verse 8. In fact, this is what all of creation groans for. Romans chapter 8, verses 22 through 25, talks about the same dynamic. All of creation groans for the next world. All of creation groans for the new heavens and the new earth, where Christ will reign, where the Father will be perfectly glorified forever and ever. This is what all of creation is waiting for. Romans 8, 22 through 25 says that the created order is eagerly awaiting the adoption of sons, hoping and groaning for our adoption to be finalized because creation will be set free when we are finalized in our adoption. Paul Azinger, I don't know if you're following the PGA tour. If you are, you're probably DVRing the last round today because Phil Mickelson's in the lead, right? But uh, there was a Christian golfer a while ago named Paul Azinger, and uh, he was diagnosed with cancer while he was on the tour. This is a while ago now. And, the the PGA Bible study leader who was following the PGA tour around sat down with Paul Azinger and said, Zinger, you're not in the land of the living going to the land of the dying. By God's grace, we're in the land of the dying, and we're going to the land of the living. Who among us would say that this world has not fallen and every single one of us is dying? Yet the great lie is that we do not want to go to heaven, which is the place where everyone goes not to die, but to never die again. Why would you ever not long to be in a place like that? The whole creation is groaning for the redemption accomplished at the cross and waiting to be consummated at the end of the age. All creation groans, anticipating Christ's glorious redemptive return. It's all of creation. If you could just hear it, would be saying the same thing. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Is that what you say? Moving up to today, right now, it's fair to say that we should be dying to go home. I want you to see this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You see we started with Job, went to Moses, went to David, skipped to Romans, skipped to your life here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're just moving chronologically through the Bible, moving chronologically through church history to your life. And I'm struck by what Paul says here in chapter 3 verses 21 through 23 when he says this, So let no one boast in men, because all things are yours, church. Whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. What's he trying to say there? Everything in that list is yours. It's all for your benefit. The church benefits from all of these things, from from great preachers of the faith to the world around them to life itself. Listen, listen. And even to death. Death is a benefit to the believer. And it belongs to the believer. Do you see that there in that passage? All things are yours, including death. Be encouraged by that. God has given you death as the gateway to eternal life in him. It's a good name to have as a church, gateway. It doesn't just point to Christ. It points to the means by which you get to him, which, if he doesn't come again, is through death. What a gift death is. Only to the believer. Thomas Watson, who is one of the more poetic of the 17th century English Puritans wrote this quote, the world is but a great inn, I-N-N. The world is but a great inn where we are to stay only a night or two and then be gone. What madness it is to set our heart upon our inn and forget our home. What madness is it for us to place so much emphasis on the one or two nights that we're at the inn and forget our home. But that's the great lie that your flesh wants to tell you is it this life is worth the, is, is the one worth living. This life is the one worth prizing. This one's the life worth pouring into. Don't store up treasures in heaven, store them up in this life. What a lie. There's so much more to this life than this life. By comparison, it's only a night or two, and then gone. James says it's like a vapor and vanishes away. Moses says it's it's by by length of days, fourscore years, eighty years, and then it's gone. All flushes is grass, and the, and the flower like and life like the flower of the field, and 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 the grass withers and the flower fades. All of us are going away so fast, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Margaret Baxter. A contemporary of Thomas Watson, Richard Baxter's wife, wrote this, quote, why should my heart be fixed where my home is not? <laughs> is that not an amazing statement? Why should my heart be fixed on where my home is not? Heaven is my home. God in Christ is all my happiness. And where my treasure is, there my heart should be. You should be dying to go home. Because death has been given to you as a gift by means of your securing your eternal home. Can I just encourage you to think about this? What am I supposed to be done? Now? I don't know what I'm supposed to be done. What's that? That's not true. Can someone stop lying and tell me what I'm supposed to be done here? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all right, all right, really? Man, I'm styling, great. Okay, then turn to 2 Thessalonians. I should have had you looking at all these passages. 2 Thessalonians, we will all marvel at and glorify Christ. We will all marvel at and glorify Christ. You can see the progression. This is, this is Job, the oldest man in the scripture, to, to Moses, to David, to all of creation in Romans 8 when Paul was writing that passage, to your life today, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that everything's been given to you as a believer. The church has everything in their possession as a good gift of God by, through Christ. But at the end of the age, or if Christ comes back, then you will marvel at Jesus. You won't have a choice. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 says so. Look back up at verse 5 because apparently I have more time than I thought. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Be very careful of the fact that you don't make Jesus into some mamsy-pamsy, spineless Weak, wit windblown, blonde-haired, blue-eyed savior guy that's you see in like 19th century Victorian England. Don't don't make Jesus in that kind of guy, that kind of God. I don't know who you think Jesus is, but you better be careful to incorporate whatever you think of who he is with verse six. He is gonna inflict affliction on those who afflict the church. In other words, Jesus is is a jealous God. You don't mess with him. And you don't mess with his people. Verse 7. He's going to afflict his enemies. But look what he does to his people. He grants relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus... when, When is the... When is the relief coming? When is the rescue going to happen? When is the redemption going to be completed? When, verse 7, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, look at this, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not, this is a fascinating word for faith, who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Ooh, man, that is like, that is, I mean, is that not powerful? So that's what Jesus' return is going to be like. He's going to be inflicting vengeance on those who don't know God when he comes from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Now, look what we'll do when we see that. Or look what happens to them, I should say, verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord. That that word away from the presence of the Lord is, is away from the face of the Lord. Interesting, isn't it? This idea of great men through time wanting to see the face of God is authentic and real. And in fact, a noble aspiration. You find this out from the reverse being true, too. Unbelievers will never see the face of God. That's what that says. They're going to suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. They're going to be destroyed forever. Destroyed, 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 destroyed. They never stop being destroyed. It's a perpetual destruction. In fact, friend, you can't even imagine it. But that's what unbelievers are storing up for themselves. Never-ending destruction. And do you want to know what it's most characterized by? Look at the next phrase. The destruction is most characterized by, grammatically, the fact that they will never see the face of the Lord. And from the glory of his might, verse 10, when he comes on that day, what, what will we be doing when he comes, if we're around? When he comes on that day to be what? What are we going to be doing? They'll be freaking out. What are we going to be doing? Glorifying God. Look at that in verse 10. We're going to be glorifying Jesus among the people of God and his saints. And what else are we going to be doing? And we're going to be marveling at who Jesus, at who Jesus is for all of us who believe. So we're going to be basically glorifying and worshiping God. Have you ever, when was the last time that you marveled at something? You remember the last time you marveled at something? Uh, there's a Giants game a little while ago. I'm a big Giants fan. How many of you are Giants fans? Yeah, A's fans? OK, it's OK. It's OK to like a, it's OK to like the B team. Uh, but the, Gi- <laughs> the Giants are, uh, there a, there's a notable moment where I, I marveled uh, a couple weeks ago when uh, one of the, the Giants players hit an inside the park home run. Have you ever seen that? He hit an inside the park home run in extra innings. Did you see this game? an inside-the-park home run, in extra innings with two outs. And it was an inside-the-park home run, in extra innings with two outs, and that run won the game because the previous one tie, tied the game, and then he raced around home plate and slid in to win the game. You remember that play? And if you watched it live, you know what I'm talking about. You were you were marveling at the ball bouncing off the right field wall going, oh, my goodness, that's triple's alley. But it took a crazy bounce. He could make it, and he is like, tearing around second. And you're like, boy, he better stop because – It's better to play it safe. And then he gets waved around third, and he stumbles because he's running so fast. You found out later he's running out of gas, and you're going, like, he's not going to make it because the guy out in center field rifled it in to the guy at shortstop who turned and made the throw home, and it was close. And you're thinking, man, this is going to be a play-to-play. It's going to be really tight. I hope he makes it. And he makes it, and he slid across home, waved safe, stood up, threw his helmet off, and the place went berserk. We had a, a couple that was at the game. He said it was as loud as he has ever heard in his life. The place was bouncing. It was so electric in the stadium. Have you ever been in a moment where you've marveled at something in your life? Where you really can't, I mean, you really can't describe it? You will never have another moment in your life like the one that's reserved for the people of God who live to see This. the people of God, are going to absolutely erupt and say, hallelujah, God, glorify yourself. We marvel at your son. You've finally come. I don't know if you've ever marveled at Jesus, but you will someday if you live to see this. And if you don't live to see this, then someday, uh, by God's grace, as he sustains you and causes you to persevere in the faith, you will most definitely see Jesus face to face. So I'm assuming that the chronology of 2 Thessalonians could happen today. Did you notice that? But the reality is I don't know whether I'll die first or see Jesus first when he comes. So I threw 2 Thessalonians in there first assuming that maybe that'll happen today, hoping it happens today. But if it doesn't happen today and I die after he comes, or die before he comes, then um, 1 Corinthians 13 comes first, chronologically speaking. You understand. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 now, and look at this one simple verse. This is embedded into the context of the great love chapter of Paul, talking about how uh, great love is. It's the <laughs> following the passage that it's read at every wedding, but no nobody ever reads this passage this passage following at the wedding, and I could probably see why. You can imagine reading this at a wedding, and it would go over like a lead balloon. You ready? We always stop at verse eight. Love never ends, and everybody goes, "Oh, why why don't we want to read the rest of the verse?" As for prophecies, they will pass away. (laughs) That wouldn't fit in so well, right? As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. What that tells you is these things read at weddings are, you know, I think there's grace there, but they're probably read a little bit out of context. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I I gave up childish ways. Verse 12. Verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. It seems very apparent to me that Paul is tying together the knowledge that he's going to have In full, in verse 12, with the vision of this one he's going to see face to face, in verse 12, with this, uh, the greatest of these is love characteristic, in verse 13. In other words, we know Jesus in part, we see Jesus in part, and we love him in part. But not for long. Someday, you will know him fully. You will see him fully, and you will love him fully. Because it all goes together, doesn't it? Knowledge increases love and increases faith. And one day, love will be completed because we won't need faith. We'll finally be able to see. Our hope for future fellowship with God is the hope to see him face-to-face. You know this to be true. Almost everything meaningful about relationship is face-to-face. We live in this age that's like, hey, Skype me, Facebook me, tweet me, text me, email me, call me, smoke signal me. I mean, it's like, man, how many more ways can we communicate without being face-to-face? And you know that you would gladly, given a choice, you would gladly, unless you don't want to see them, <laughs> you would gladly exchange every other method of communication no matter how fantastically modern and technologically advanced. You exchange it all for the, for the, the opportunity to see them face to face. Almost everything about meaningful relationship is face to face. Listen, this is, you know this intrinsically. When you say, I want to see my wife, you don't mean you want to see her left hand. I mean, maybe you could mean that. Maybe she's got a beautiful left hand. I don't, you're not, you don't mean I want to see her feet. I guess maybe you could mean that if you really like her feet. But what do you really mean when you say, I want to see my wife? In fact, let me take it further. Are you even seeing your wife? If you haven't seen her for months and months, and you're aching to see your wife, and finally you get a view of your wife, and she's standing facing away from you, and she never turns to face you. Have you really seen her? Does that meet with your satisfaction? Do you in your mind go check the box, saw my wife? She's awesome. Looks as good as she's ever looked from the back. Is that what you mean by that? What do you mean when you say I want to see my wife? You at least are starting with, I want to see her what? Face. In fact, it's true to say, I think you could at least mostly mean, I want to see my wife, meaning I want to see her face. Why? Why? Because to see her face is the closest physical way to see into someone's soul. Right? Listen, right now, all we have of Christ is his word and spiritual presence by the Spirit. We have his great and exceedingly precious promises given to us through the knowledge of him, right? And these things are an amazing blessing. We have his words, and that's what we have. But someday we won't just have the words, we'll have the one who spoke them to us. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, someday I'm gonna see him face to face, No more dim mirrors that make you want to polish them. Like, my my daughter was playing with my iPhone yesterday while eating chips. And so everything was greasy on my iPhone display. And I was like, oh, man, I I can't see anything. I could, I could. But it was dim. It was all greasy and mixed up. That's how our life is right now. We can't quite see. I'm like, oh, I can't. Everything is all messed up by my sin and and the brokenness of the world around me. And I wish I could just clean this thing up so I could really see someone like they really are. Someday the sin will be wiped away and the muck of this world will be wiped clean, and we're going to be able to look at a clean display of the actual image of the invisible God. Can you believe that? I mean, that's happening someday. It's going to get wiped clean, and we're going to be able to see perfectly. Listen, you see Jesus in Rod's study of the Gospel of John. You see, you see him there enough to believe him. But the reason why the Gospel of John is there to, is to get you to believe him so someday you'll see him, <laughs> right? Because faith and hope remain today, but they won't remain forever, You won't need to believe in Jesus someday because you'll see him and you'll love him fully in immediate relationship to him. Romans chapter eight says that hope with sight isn't hope. You don't hope in something you see. You hope in something you don't see. Romans eight. So you won't have to hope in Christ anymore someday either. In fact, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says this, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we will someday see the face of Jesus Christ, which Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 is the same as seeing the glory of God. You want to see the glory of God on display someday? You will as soon as you see him. He is the express image of the divine image, Hebrews chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1. You don't see any less of God than when you see Jesus. And so we don't want to see him dimly, do we? We want to see him fully. And that's what we see when we finally go home. It's interesting. Um, I, uh, I was thinking about this a while back and um, thinking about how happy it is to get home. And you can go ahead and expand your mind to think about other homes that you may have now. But one of the great joys of my life, uh, it's, a, it's like a little joy, is when I, uh, I drive home after working all day you know the scene. I mean, you've probably done this yourself if you work. Uh, you drive home, and, and you're just sitting there on your commute. My commute's about seven minutes, so <laughs> not very long. But you, you drive home in your commute, and you're thinking about what's happening at home, maybe. I mean, on your better days, right? On your worst days, you're thinking about work still. But on your better days, you, you, you shelve it, and you start thinking about what's happening at home. You transition there, and, and the thought of home brightens your mind, right? That routine of driving home is a sweet one, or it should be a sweet one for us. In my world, I I drive down the court. We live in a little cul-de-sac. Drive down the court, drive up the driveway, open the garage door. And uh, the garage door opens, and uh, as is the case often these days at this stage of our family's life, the garage door opens, and all the kids, or at least some of the kids, as soon as the door is opening, you can see their little feet. And then the garage door opens another section. You can see their little waists, and they're gathering up there doing this stuff, and they don't have shoes on. They might just have socks on, and you're tempted to yell at them, get your shoes on, but you don't want to do that. It's, it's, it's the case almost every day where um, one of the kids or more will come out to greet you at the garage door. And they're saying something like, daddy, daddy, hi, daddy, welcome home, daddy, and they're all excited. Like, sometimes you can't even open the door. I, I, try, I pull into the garage, and I'm, I'm sitting there waiting to open my door, and one of my kids is like, hey, daddy, hey, daddy. I'm like, hey, hold, let me open the door, hold on one second, because they're so excited to see dad. You know what I'm talking about? And and I'll say, like, kids, just take it easy. Let me open the door. Let dad open the door. I love those moments. Those are great moments, aren't they? If you have kids, you know what I'm talking about maybe. After a good day of work, (laughs) those are tiring moments, aren't they? And you're just beat. But they're good moments because they're so sweet. We love our kids. We love our house. But you need to know that the glory of the Dresdell home is not any of those things. The glory of the Dresdo home, quite frankly, is very often when my, after the kids are dancing around the car or standing in front of the car, I'm in the garage waiting to get out. The glory of the Dresdo home is when my wife is standing at the garage door, that leads into the house, and she's saying hi to me. She's welcoming me home. That's the glory of the Dresdo home. My kids are amazing. I love the joy of our children. But when my wife often appears standing at the door to our house, welcoming me home, that is the glory of our home. Without a doubt, the, the love of a covenant partner excels the, the gifts that the covenant partnership brings listen again, the gift of the covenant covenant partner is far better and excels still more all the gifts that the covenant partnership brings. I love my kids. I love my house, but the glory of my home is my covenant partner. How much more glorious will it be then when our work in this life is over? Our door is drawing, our day is drawing to a close, and the door into our next life is starting to open, and we start to see family members that we haven't seen in a while in heaven. And we start to see the heroes of the faith circling around the door, welcoming us home. And we start to see the beautiful home that Jesus has gone on to prepare for you, John 14, verses 1 through 6. And, and all of that is coming into your view as you're fading it from this life into the next life. Can you even imagine the joy of what that will look like? You're going to finally see people that you've always wondered about and wanted to see But can you imagine the joy that you will have when you finally, at the end of this life, have the door into the next life open and the one that you've always longed to see is the one who will be welcoming you home. The glory of heaven will be when you finally have Jesus welcome you into his heaven. That is the glory of heaven. That is the glory of your home. And you know it intrinsically. Uh, Far better than all the love of your kids and all of your stuff that you have is the love that you have for your wife. Or for your spouse, you know that that's true. So, why do we forget that when we think about Christ? It's the same picture Christ in the church, husband and wife. It's meant to be the same to help your love and your longing for Christ exceed still more in a thousand different pictures in your marriage. (laughs) Your marriage is just an illustration, you guys. This is not the real thing, this is practice. This is just meant to be an illustration of of the truth, the reality that faith helps us to embrace and will one day help us to see, which is that God loves his people infinitely, and he will one day take us home to be with him. Friend, that is good news That's good news worth living for. That's good news worth dying for. Matthew Henry wrote this quote: "He whose head is in heaven need not fear to put his foot in the grave." So bring it on. The best day is still await. It is true that your best days are yet ahead. But you need to embrace that by faith until one day it's made sight. This news is the news that you read about in Isaiah chapter 40, when Isaiah says, go up onto a high mountain, O Zion. Zion were the people of God back then, okay? So this is what Isaiah the prophet is saying about this one who's gonna follow as the messenger who makes the high places low and the and the rough place is plain speaking about the ministry of John the Baptist after John the Baptist comes this one who's going to come after him is the one that we're supposed to proclaim and Isaiah chapter 40 verse 9 says go up onto a high mountain O people of God herald of the good news and that word in the Greek Septuagint is the gospel herald of the gospel lift up your voice in strength O Jerusalem herald of the gospel or the good news lift up your voice and don't be afraid say to the cities of Judah behold Your God. That's our God. That's your future home. Don't be afraid to talk about it. Don't be afraid to share it. Don't be afraid to invite other people into that. You see how the gospel really is not bad news. It's really the best news that anyone can hear. So why would we not want to talk about this more? And in fact, that's actually what we're commanded to do. When when people understand the gospel, the people of God are supposed to get up onto some platform and shout it out. In fact, that's the goal of the gospel. There's more of the gospel than behold your God, but that's the, that's the telos of it. That's the goal of it. The end of the gospel is so that you might say, look, there's God. Or behold your God. It's the most gracious command and best gift of the gospel. And it's summed up simply by having the people of God say, We are a people who love to long to look at God. Do you? Do you? What would be the evidence that you would produce that would demonstrate that you do? This is good discussion for small groups. It's good discussion for application in your own life. It's good for you to think about as you walk out. Do I really long to go home? I don't care about your answer verbally. I could tell it spiritually by how you live your life. So live your life like one who longs to look. And someday, you'll be able to So I'm going to pray for you and ask that God would give us the grace to long to go home. And when the end of your life happens, the garage door flies open and you see Christ, that you will say, finally, 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 work is over and I get to come in. So let me pray for us. Father, I'm so grateful for this day that I've been anticipating being here ever since Rod so graciously invited me, Lord. I'm just excited to see your work among your people here. Excited to know that your people are reaching out to those who are not yet your people, but maybe your people. Oh God, would you help us to proclaim the gospel that is indeed the best of news. That there is more to life than this life. In fact, this life is practically nothing compared to the next. And that, Our best life is not now. Our best life is emphatically later, but soon, soon. Oh God, I pray that it would be so soon that your son would come quickly and that he would come and take his people home, that the bridegroom would come and take the bride back to be where he is, where the never-ending feast of the marriage supper of the Lamb would commence. Father, if that's not the case and you would have us to walk and to persevere in the faith that you've given to us as a gracious gift, then help us, oh God, to have our faith be strengthened, our hope to be encouraged, and our love to be inflamed evermore until we await the day that we pass from this life to the next life and know and believe for certain that as soon as we close our eyes in this life, we open our, li- our, our, our eyes and the first person we see is Christ. God, would you please help that moment to inform every moment of this life. In these people here this morning, oh God, help us to be far more heavenly minded than we are today. Help us, oh God, to long for our home, not because it's a beautiful place, not because there are a lot of beautiful people, but because you are a God worth beholding forevermore. Oh God, exalt yourself among your people cause us to be a people who will stop at nothing to talk about this good news, to to stand up on the mountain, to get up onto the platforms of life and to shout this good news that you are a God who has provided rescue in Christ and that salvation does not just mean for this life. Salvation means to live in your presence forevermore. A presence where pleasures will increase forevermore just as the psalmist said. God, we are grateful that you've given us the knowledge of your Son who has unleashed upon us these great and very precious promises through which everything that we need for life and godliness is ours and secured in Christ through the work of the Spirit, according to the Word of God. But Lord, we long for still more. We long to see you, oh God, as much of, us, as much of you as you have been pleased to display in the face of Jesus Christ. So help us to Behold him with the eyes of faith until someday like Job, we will see him with our own eyes. And we will know that our Redeemer lives. We know that our Redeemer lives. Oh, God, help us to live for him. And help us to make a difference among your people with the resolve of our mind, with the work of our hands and with the longing of our heart. Make it our ambition, O God, to to be happy to go home. I commend these people to you, God, and commend them to the word of your grace, which is able to build them up and to give them the inheritance with all the saints in glory. Asking these things in your son's name and for his sake. Amen.